It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. If you're wondering what we're going to be talking about today, let me give you a guess. It has to do with the financial chaos that's going on out there in the stock market right now. I mean, how could you not know what is going on out there with the financial markets? And I'm going to try to give you some guidance, give you some sanity to kind of know what to do in this this market that, that is testing the strongest of stomachs right now. By the way, if you're just now joining us, if you're not used to being a Money Guy listener, I am your host, Brian Preston. By day, I am a fee-only wealth manager down here on the south side of Atlanta. This is not my day job. But for giggles, for the last three years, I have been a podcaster, one of the, the, the kind of ground floor guys out there putting these shows out there and we've been rewarded with that by having um, a pretty successful podcast and you guys are a big part of that um, for being so supportive my listeners always amaze me with how much they help us out with show topics as well as feedback on itunes and everything else that we can use to to help help the show keep going if you want to write the show you can write us at brian, that's B-R-I-N, at money-guy.com. Also, you can go to money-guy.com. Check out our show notes. If you want. If you like what you see there, you can sign up to get your the show notes blasted out to you each week every time we update the show. And you can also register to become a member of the, the Money Guy family when we actually get our act together and get that organized and start sending out some information that only members of the Money Guy family will be getting. So let's let's talk about what's going on. And, and I, I got to tell you, I've been doing a lot of reading, and what I've come to the to the realization, I recognize this feeling, and this is this is what clients pay me for. At this time, is is that feeling you get from recognizing you've been in this situation before? I am starting to feel that, um, you know, you're in a market that bad news has been coming at a pace that after a while you start to feel numb. That, that this is just what in the world are you doing with these with these markets? And that's the exact same feeling I can remember getting back in 2002. It, it was that desperation feeling that this is madness. You know, you can do all the right tools, you can do diversification, and all of this stuff is just maddening right now. And, and that's the exact same feeling I can remember having back in past bad markets. I can remember that... um one of the latter quarters in 98, I believe it was fourth quarter of 98 before we had a huge recovery, either late third quarter or early fourth quarter. I remember the bottom fell out of the market back in 98, but then it quickly recovered at the end of the year. That was um, one of those gut-checking feelings. And then, of course, the bear market of 2000, 2001, 2002 was just dreadful. And what I've done after kind of that feeling of tiredness, frustration, um, the discussions with the clients, trying to calm them down to understand that there there is some reasoning to all this madness that's out there in the marketplace, is that I needed to put together uh, some semblance of, uh, of my talking points and, and what we're going to do. And I'm going to share that today is kind of to put some sanity with this, this market to kind of think about what's going on. Bef- before I get into these talking points, I feel like we need to kind of summarize what got us in this situation in the first place that we now have um, the majority of the freestanding investment banks pretty much sinking under the weight of the debt 
that they have pretty much put themselves into, the leverage debt that they put themselves in over the last five to eight years. What got us in this situation was several things, and it's, it's kind of a perfect storm to some of these lenders. What happened was, a while back, the government, and, 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 they, and I think they were well-intentioned to a degree, you know, we've got, we got Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, which have been taken over, but all of the, you know, they support a lot of these loans that go out to market. And we got to the point where real estate was decided needed to be for everybody. And when that was determined, they kind of opened the floodgates on free money. I mean, if you wanted a house in the past, all you had to do was have a smile and a pulse and, um, <laughs> a doctored up W-2, and you could probably get about anything you want. Um, no longer did you re- were you required to put down 15 to 20% like you know people in the past have been able to do when you want to buy a new house. Now you just had to show up with a W-2. You could do 100% financing because I really think everybody in the real estate community, in the banking community, in the appraisal community, that everybody was in the same party and got drunk and drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, it, it is no different than the irrational exuberance that Alan Greenspan talked about with the tech bubble. And, and what I mean by that is when you had all this free money coming out, where the banks were buying into this too, and they weren't doing an underwriting process, and everybody and their brother could go get any house they pretty much wanted. It wasn't hard. It didn't matter if, if they could necessarily afford it anymore that shot up demand in the housing market. And, and just like supply and demand, the way you know simplistic e- economics works out, um, if you're getting down to the core foundation of how economics works is, is if you have an, a, a huge increase in demand with only so much supply, what happens is prices go up on real estate, houses, and everything within that category. And that was okay to the banks. They didn't care, you know, that they were on this train, that they were giving loans out to everybody because they had this assumption that, hey, if these guys can't afford this house, no biggie, because it's real estate. You know, and God's not making more land. So we will just take back this real estate that we've given to these people, and we'll make a killing because real estate doesn't go down in value. It's not able to have a bubble because there's there's only so much land on the earth anyway so they drank the Kool-Aid thinking that real estate was always going to go up and, and you and you saw that and that's what led to this this huge run up in prices and people bought it hook line and sinker and, and so you had all these prices run up you had all these people thinking that they could go out and banks could give this money to whoever showed up through the door and now the realization is starting to, to occur that some of these subprime loans, some of this package, these, these auction rate loans that were packaged up with some of these other mortgage-backed securities are, are really not worth the ink and paper that they were printed on. And with that realization, and I think this has hit the investment banks very hard, because what's happened is, is when Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae were taken over by the government in the last week or so, uh, the you know, it, kind of the cat was out of the bag. It, the, you know, their, their goose was cooked at that point. I don't mean to keep using all these, you know, these anecdotal sayings, but man, do they fit in this type of situation. When you go home, and, and I'm going to go through several points, and you just have to bear with me because I have a lot of emotion pent up after the craziness of the last two days. When I, I worked late last night, and I get home, and I know I'm in trouble when I turn on the nightly news, and, and there's Brian Williams with NBC News, 
and he's doing some special segment. I, I think he was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, or he was doing a special segment of the evening news where they were broadcasting and fo- focusing specifically on the meltdown of Washington uh, of, of Wall Street. I don't know why I said Washington. It's a meltdown of Washington, too, but the meltdown of Wall Street. And if you could see me, I'd have the rabbit quotes up there when I'm talking about meltdown because that was on all the headlines. And then I also knew when I woke up this morning and I see Matt Lauer on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange that this is this has got some they're gonna run with this thing for a little bit. And and rightfully so. I guess I understand to a degree, but I've got to caution you to be careful about the media. And I'm gonna get back to my point, but let's talk about this media thing first. You know, last week I did a show. I closed out the show with, you know, something I thought was quite interesting, which was the CERN um, Atom Smasher experiment that's going on over in Geneva where they've got, they're doing this part, you know, they're doing this atom collider to see how much energy they can harness and they really don't know what's going to happen. And this, this was like last Wednesday, I believe. And I remember, you know, I went out and did some research on this. And this is what cracks me up about the news media is that these guys, the news media, that, that are trying to explain something so complex as the CERN Atom Smasher Project and the Collider. That, that, there's your first clue. The word is Collider is in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the whole experiment here. Is that they're trying to cover this complex analysis that these scientists are doing. And they mentioned that there could be a, a, a minor black hole formed. And what cracks me up is that if you go do any research, you could see that it's going to take three weeks, at least three weeks, I believe, to get the atom smasher up to speed. Because what they have to do is they have to send one atom one way. And, you know, you got to get it up to speed as close to the speed of light as they can, you know, whatever humans can do to get close to that um, with magnets and all kind of other underground tunnels. But then a few weeks later, after they get that direction up to speed, they're going to send another atom the opposite way to collide them. And And that's the part that's a little uncertain. But the press got confused with the whole collider concept and that you have to have two things going in opposite directions because, you know, that was the Wednesday report and then Thursday morning I wake up and, there, and, and I even saw print articles saying the experiment was a success and we're all still here so uh, it must all be good. And I was like, do you guys not know what you're reporting? Did you not read the fine print of what the word collider meant and how it meant took to get it up to speed? So these guys had no clue. I mean, basically all that happened over at this experiment was they turned the on switch and the press reported on that, not knowing that two weeks from now is when actually um, the, the fireworks is supposed to occur on, on that experiment. So, so don't be very careful when you're dealing with, with very complex items like the economy and structures, when you go and, and get this information from a simplistic source like the media where, I'll be honest, I'm disappointed and their lack of understanding of basic economics when I listen to them talk about what's going on out there in the financial markets. This is the same media that will pay their weathermen millions of dollars, send them down to hurricanes, put them out in the middle of a hurricane in a slicker just so we can have a, you know, the entertainment factor of watching their weathermen be blown around with people holding their legs. I mean, it, it is just insane that this is who we're going to take our financial information from. And I know that's not you guys out there listening in the Money Guy family, because you guys, as, as I found from looking at when I get emails from you and, uh, you know, look at who you are at the organizations on the email addresses and what you tell me in the emails, cream of the crop. But So you're probably tickled about this stuff just as much as I am, but it, it's one of those things that it kind of makes me laugh on the inside, but on the outside, 
I get a little fiery in the face because it, it, it does kind of bother you that, that the media can get the public in such a frenzy, and, and rightfully so, this stuff is intense. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to candy coat what is going on out there with these financial markets, but I also want you to know this ain't the first time, or ain't is not the right word, but that's how hungry I am. This is not, using proper English, this is not the first time that we as investors have been in bad pickles of situations. And we're going to make it through this thing, and I want to give you some, some information to help you weather this storm. Now, I put together, me and my partner, Bill, remember I do have a partner over in Augusta, Georgia, with the name of Bill Cleveland, super smart guy, and me and him have been very busy over the last two days, really since Sunday when the news kind of broke that this was bloody Sunday coming on with everything going on with Lehman Brothers and Merrill Lynch. I, I first want to, and I, I keep I hate to keep going on these sidebars, but before I start reading off of stuff, I want to go ahead and get out what I've got in my head. Is Lehman Brothers, let's talk about what happened there. I'm going to make this as simple as possible because I think it's pretty simple. It's leveraged debt is the problem, but let me tell you what I mean by that. If you've got a company, if you go look at the value of the common stock, and it's $20 billion, but then you go look at the balance sheet. And I got this from John Hussman's site. If you go look at Hussman Funds, you know, which is one of the long, short, very popular mutual funds out there, he has great commentary on this. But I'm going I'm to give you some stats that I saw on his site that I think is pretty incredible. And it's HussmanFunds.com if you want to go check it out. But he kind of sums it up best when you're talking about Lehman Brothers. You have a company that if you look at the common stock value is about $20 billion. Good bit of money, don't get me wrong. But then you go look at their balance sheet, the assets, and they have a balance sheet assets column listed at $600 billion. What does that mean if only $20 billion of that is the common stock value? That means that there is $580 billion worth of, worth of leveraged debt sitting on their financial statements. And why would anybody in the world want to go buy this company when if 3% of that debt on those books is bad, will eat away every bit of the, of the common stock value. Nobody's going to do that. So the only thing they can do is go out there, since they're not going to find a, a reasonable buyer in that aspect, the only thing they can do is go find and use bankruptcy as a tool and shed some of that debt. And unfortunately, it's going to hurt. I'll go ahead and tell you, it's going to hurt the bondholders. It's already hurt the equity holders. But it should not, just as John Hussman says on his website, it should not hurt the account holders. People who own funds at, at, at you know, Lehman Brothers as well as some of these other investment banks, they should be fine. Um, you know, if you have insurance you know, and other products at these things, you're probably going to find out as a customer you're going to be okay. But if you own equity in any of these stocks, if you own bonds in any of these, if you're holding those bonds, you're going to get hurt. Um, now, you probably do have some of that stuff in some of your mutual funds, but recognize this is one of those benefits of having a mutual fund is that you're so diversified and spread out that it does not hit you as bad as obviously trying to pick those individual stocks, and that's one of the reasons I don't play that maddening game. I will also tell you I've gotten some calls from customers and clients. I don't know why I say customers. It's not like I'm serving ice cream here, but I've gotten a call from a few of my clients asking, well, Brian, I know you use Fidelity Institutional. What's going on there? And I will tell you what I've heard through the grapevine is you don't hear Fidelity Institutional. You don't hear Charles Schwab. You don't hear any of those type of firms listed as being on the two watch list as being in trouble for some of this subprime and bond mess that's going on in the financial institutions. It's primarily the investment banks. And when I'm talking about it, freestanding investment banks, we're talking about the big five that have been around for a while 
is Bear Stearns gone, rest in peace. We've got Lehman Brothers about to be gone, rest in peace. We've got um, Goldman Sachs waiting to see what happens there. Morgan Stanley waiting to see what's going to happen there. And then the last one, Merrill Lynch got very creative and worked with Bank of America and have joined up with Bank of America so they have access to their deep pockets and, and book, book of assets that can absorb some of those that, that leverage debt out there. And i got to tell you, I think Goldman Sachs, as well as Morgan Stanley, are probably going to have to move just like that to quickly find a suitor out there that's going to allow them to have a traditional banking platform like um, Bank of America and Merrill Lynch did. So, But if you have investments at a financial institution, more than likely your assets are going to be fine. So relax. You don't need to go make a run on your investments and pull those out. I don't see anybody losing a lot of value in their investments. It's just primarily if you own actual stocks or bonds in some of these investment banks that are out there. So I hope that makes sense, and I don't mean to keep going on. I mean, I'm looking at my clock now, and we're like 16 to 17 minutes into this podcast, and I'm just getting this stuff off my chest. So this is rolling off quite quickly. Um, let's talk about what I sent out to my clients. Um, and, and I'm just going to kind of lay this out there for you guys, and then I'm going to give you some talking points on how you can be very objective and make good financial decisions. These are no doubt stressful times. I mean, let's face it, three of the five U.S. investment banks are really no longer in existence the way they were in the past. You got Bear Stearns was purchased by J.P. Morgan earlier this year. Lehman's is, current, is in currently in bankruptcy filing, and the purchase of Merrill Lynch um, by Bank of America is going to change the way that company has been functioning. More than likely, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs will either buy or be acquired by major banks over the next several months. These firms are paying the price for the use of excessive leverage over the last eight years, partly due to the incentives of the government provided in low, low interest rates. And that's what we're going to find out is maybe we should have flipped those interest rates. And I'm not trying to point the fingers all the way, but I just want you to know kind of how the moving parts all work together. Is those interest rates maybe back in 2003 and 2004 might have been flipped over and kept artificially too low too long, which nothing wrong with the low interest rates, but that's partially what also drove the value of the dollar down to the point that, that we were hurt for a while by that valuation. And you can get into gold, oil, and all the other, you know, inflation indicators out there when you start talking about the devaluation of money but we're not we're not getting into that today that's too deep um, this leverage leaves little room for write downs of assets and lower stock prices make it even more difficult for these firms to raise capital because I you know I didn't even mention this to my clients but let's if you start talking about naked shorts and what those things have done to the financial sector it is it is devastating. You know, there's been some, you know, these these hedge fund managers, which I use a lot of long short funds. I use hedge fund managers. I use kind of the more the market neutral strategies that they're using. But some of these guys have just decimated some of these financial stocks through by doing these short sales. Evident, eventually, the market will work these things out and start to recover. And often, the best returns come after these these very bleak and depressing periods of time. In an ideal world, obviously, we get out of the market just before the crash and get back in the day before the market trends upward. But there's so much research out there that shows that that's next to impossible um, because people just are not good at market timing. Um, I'm going to go over in a minute a Dalbar research study, and I've gone over this in the past, but they have a brand new study out that came out in July that shows that, that most 
individual investors are actually dreadful at managing their own money and trying to time the market. And we're going to show how that corresponds with exactly what we're talking about, the pessimism and optimism that goes with the market emotions. While these are painful times in the short term, these are normal ways that our economy self-corrects itself on average every four to five years. And let me give you an example. Let me, let me give you another sidebar comment. If you were in your 20s and 30s, which I know a lot of my listeners are, or early 40s even, you ought to be smiling right now. And I know that sounds like the craziest, craziest and oddest thing to say, but you are not at the peak investment capital period portion of your life. I mean, you've got a lot more saving to do in your lifetime. So when you're in this market, you just essentially got a 5% off coupon in the mail is what you got. And if you're looking at it from last year, since September, when this thing, you know, we got our countrywide news and we started realizing this subprime thing was probably going to be a little deeper and a little longer, take a little longer to unwind than we thought, you got a 20% off coupon in the mail. And, and, you know, you ought to be smiling a little bit as long as you have a systematic plan where you're taking advantage of and you're, and you're actually investing monthly in your retirement plan and trying to be consistent and not let this emotional stuff get you off track. But let's get back to what I talked to my clients about. So while these are painful times at a short time, these are normal ways our economy self-corrects itself. I've talked about that. And the example is, in 1990, Drexel, Burnham, and Lambert went bankrupt. And that was big news on Wall Street back then because that was the largest Wall Street bankruptcy of all time. Since then, the average return for the stock market has been almost 10% annually. This 10% annual return is during a time when we had two Gulf Wars, we had 9-11, which we just had the, the anniversary of last week. We had the Asian crisis. And, and, you know, when I talk about the Asian crisis, we're also talking about the collapse of Japan to a large degree. The technology bust of, you know, the dot-com bu bubble bursting. We got Hurricane Katrina, which was just dreadful. And we've had other horrible financial debacles. Something about humankind and human nature is, is that we always act like this is the very first time we've been in negative times. And that's just not the case. It, you just I, I know it's hard to focus on the good times, but this is part of the typical cycle. Now, sure, we haven't had a financial cycle you know, where, where we had people doing and running up the leverage debt that they've done in the past, but we also didn't have a dot-com bubble ever in history like we had either. Um, so all those things are first to one degree or another, so you just have to think about how to handle that. Um, I close out my letter to, that I sent out, the, the kind of the email blast I sent out to the clients was saying a, a few more points. I said, capitalism has thrived for hundreds of years, but within that time, the world has experienced major, major disruptions to capital markets. We've already lived through a domestic terrorist attack, two world wars, a flu pandemic, and one of the largest natural oh, this is This is typical of my day today as I'm, you know, my tongue's decided it's not going to work. We lived through one of the largest natural ca catastrophes to hit the United States in the last hundred years. One thing that is certain is that we will always have challenges that we face. The best advice I can give you at a time like this is to read as many objective, factual pieces of information and to avoid the highly emotional nightly newscasts. Hint, hint, when they're broadcasting from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, they are smiling on the inside. I truly do believe that. Okay, let's talk about also, now that I've kind of made you this, and I'll go ahead and pardon me for saying it, a poop sandwich by laying out all this negative stuff that's going on out there. Let's try to find you some whipped cream to tell you how you take some of this bad stuff. Maybe I should, maybe the better way to say this, let's turn these lemons into lemonade. 
but um, poop sandwich kind of says it a little bit better, it seems like, in this crazy market. We, um, as I told you, I have a partner over in Augusta named Bill Cleveland. Bill sent me a piece that he is, um, had published in um, a, a newsletter called The Medical Examiner. It might be a magazine, but, it's, but he sent this. He had it published back in August 15, 2008, and it's titled How to Achieve Higher Returns than the Average Investor, and I think Bill did an awesome job on this piece. He wrote, diversification, this is, remember, these are all key points on how to achieve a higher return than the average investor. He wrote, diversification. A proactive and well-informed decision-making. That's your first thing that you need to do. If you want to earn higher returns, you need to have diversification that's proactive and provides a well-informed decision-making process. And let's talk about that. If you, have, if you are proactive, then more than likely you have a better chance of building a diversified portfolio for your age, time horizon, and risk tolerance. Most people are not proactive in setting up their investment strategy. They have not tied how their capital is invested to their short-term and long-term goals in life and therefore not properly diversified. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. I picked up a new client and um, it, it's, it's one of those couples, this happens all the time, where the, the husband and wife handle their money completely differently. And um, so I've got the wife as a client and, and they're a successful couple, you know, small business owners. And um, we've got her on the, the Preston and, and Cleveland way of doing diversified financial planning and investment management where we spread our money out across many different asset classes so we can hopefully find something that, that's going to offset the craziness that's going on right now. Well, I'm trying to work on, as you can imagine, I'd like to have the husband's assets too. And when I've talked to him and I've asked him, you know, how things are going and what I can do to try to get him in the door, he, he cracked me up with one of his responses. One of them was, I don't know, these guys, you know, that I've got managing my money, and I don't want to tell you who he's currently working with, because they are really working right now. I mean, I'm getting trade tickets all the time right now. They are really trying to do whatever they can to fix the situation. And, you know, why that cracks me up, I will tell you, is because if you were doing a ton of trades right now, you're a reactionary. If, you have, if you've done your homework and done what you were supposed to, a lot of these trades should have occurred last September and October. And I'll tell you, we did a lot of trades back in October. We didn't get it completely right because, like I said, this bad news started in September. But we got it close enough that we made some changes that now, sure, we're not making money. Who's making money right now? But we sure are protecting a lot better than the market is on the downside. But I just, it, it just that, that whole perception of that he sure is working hard for me right now cracked me up because if he's working hard for you right now, that means that he might have been asleep at the wheel when, when changes should have been made earlier because you want to be proactive not reactive when you're with your investments. So think about that. The next thing that can be your, your way to achieve higher returns than the average investor is your behavior. You need to make logical versus emotional decisions. And what do I mean by that? Let's give you some actual quantifiable information to go with what I'm saying here because that, that statement might sound weaker than it actually is and it might be a lot more intense and, and a lot more profound than you realize. Assuming you have appropriate diversification in your portfolio, then the second and possibly many times more important factor is do you give your plan the opportunity to, to, to succeed? Meaning, do you give your, time, your plan, the plan that's put in place, enough time to provide that long-term performance? One of the most informative studies on investment behavior is Dalbar's Quantitative Analysis of Investment Behavior. Now, I've talked about this before, but Dalbar has been measuring the effects of investor decisions to buy and sell and switch to, in and out of mutual funds since 1984. And what they came up in their July study, which is, that's this July 2008, 
they came out with their most recent study, and that study concluded that investment returns, and if I could, if I could somehow show you bold-faced writing right now, this is what I would show you. So I don't know if I should shout it or what I should do to draw attention to this next statement, but investment return is far more dependent on investment investor behavior than on fund performance. Mutual fund investors who hold their investments typically earn higher returns over time than those who time or try, I probably should add my own word, try to time the market. Based on Dalbar's analysis of actual investment behavior over the last 20 years, ending December 31st, 2007, the average equity fund investor would have earned an annualized return of just 4.48%, dramatically underperforming the S&P 500 by more than 7%, and outpacing inflation, inflation by a mere 1.44%. Now, there's uh, a, a mutual fund company called Selected American Shares came out with a 2008 summer review, and I, I've had the chance to look at that research report. And they had used this, um, this, this you know, Dalbar study, and they had some very interesting um, charts in their study. And one of the things they had was the average stock fund investor return versus the average stock fund return from 1988 to 2007. So that 20-year period was, if you invested $10,000 over that 20-year that period, the average stock fund investor would have only returned $24,025. They'd turned that $10,000 into $24,025, so they'd have made fourteen dollars Well, if you'd have just bought a st the average stock fund instead of trying to time it, um, according to the Dalbar research, that $10,000 would have turned into $90,036, so an $80,000 rate of return on that money. That's substantially higher than the $14,000 rate of return of the average investor. And Dalbar gives the, the, reasons, the following two reasons for these results. First, investors' attempts to time their investments and redemptions are frequently unsuccessful. Rather than buy low and sell high, the typical investor exhibits the characteristics of buying high, presumably encouraged by years of positive market returns and then selling low, most likely in complete reaction, emotional reaction to market declines. And this is backed up by the point number two that Dalbar made. Investor holding periods on average are shorter than the periods measured by mutual fund companies. The average holding period was less than four years. And if you think about that, that's very profound to me that the average holding period is four years because that really does closely correspond to, with the average market cycle and shows that most investors do not have the patience to weather market dips. And what I mean by that is you think about it, we typically experience two down markets every decade. So two divided by 10 is five years. Well, the average holding period is four years. Doesn't that seem quite kind of coincidental, oddly coincidental, that the average investor only holds four years? That's because instead of buying low and selling high, the average investor, you know, they hear about the party that's going on on the nightly news, that the, you know, the, the Dow Jones has hit an all-time high, and they go, man, I need to get in that market. I want to be a part of that party. And then you get into times like we're in right now, and they're like, oh my God, what am I doing in this stock market? And they get the heck out. And, and, and that's exactly what this study is showing you. And, and before I go on to the last piece, which was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal today, was I, I've heard it, and I don't know who said it. I'm sure I could go find the author, but I think it's a great saying, is that times like this, down markets return 
investment capital back to their rightful owners, the long-term investors. And that is so true because it is times like this that you get the weak money out of the marketplace so that we can get back into the historical performance of what the markets do. So let me close out the show with one more article. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal, and I don't know if this was actually in the print version because we pulled this off the internet, but it's called How to Handle a Market Gone Mad. And it was written by Jason... Zawig. I don't know if I said Jason's last name right, but it sounds cool to say Zawig. So um, uh, that's what we're going to go with. Because Jason, if you listen to this, so sorry, but if, I, if that was my last name, that's the way I'd pronounce it. He goes on and he adds some point, and, he's, and it has same courses of action, even as the market seemed to have gone mad. And I thought this was some good points. What Jason writes in the Wall Street Journal was, be a contrarian. The late Sir John Templeton preached that investors should buy at the point of maximum pessimism. When market sentiment stinks and no one wants to hold anything but cash, adds Daniel Fuss, vice chairman at money manager Loomis Sales and Company in Boston. By the way, I use a few of their um, bond funds. They do a pretty good job. It's not a point. It's a period, meaning that he thinks that is one of the most crucial points of um, the financial markets. No one can find the point or moment at which pessimism hits the exact its exact zenith, but it's not hard to identify a period in which pessimism is extreme, like right now. When I spoke to him yesterday, Mr. Fuss called this market the best opportunity to buy corporate bonds at phenomenal prices since September 1974. Risk takers might take a look at real estate related stocks. Extreme risk takers might even consider a small allocation to financial stocks. You know, it's, it's that whole contrarian person, you know, thought process that we've talked about here and Jason's got in his article. The other point that I thought was very interesting in, in Jason's article was take baby steps. If you truly cannot sleep at night, sell off some stock or Move some of your money into bonds or cash, but do so at a little bit at a time and talk to your tax advisor first in order to maximize the considerable tax benefits you may be able to get out of those incremental moves. By the time you get any money moving, the panic may have already passed. And then last, he closes the article out with question and authority. If the financial world really were coming to an end, nobody would know it. Least of all would be all the pundits who are currently crying doom. It's a mistake to trust the consensus view of the experts. While the mood on Wall Street now is dark as the mushroom farm, optimists are much more likely than pessimism, pessimists to be proven right in the end. Right on, Jason. I completely agree. I remember, you know, go back and listen to this podcast. Hopefully... With, with all this off my chest now, I'm going to be able to sleep better at night tonight. Um, got all my majority of my clients called or emailed today, so I'm feeling much better about that. But, but you know, when you feel yourself to feel the need to let that 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 emotional drive of oh my gosh, I got to get out of this stock market hit you, throw some cold water in your face. Go listen to this podcast. Go look at some of our show notes, and, and I think you're going to recognize that no, you're going to be okay. Especially my younger listeners. Hang in there. Don't try to be a market timer, and you're going to weather this crazy, crazy storm that we're in right now. I hope this show has been beneficial to you. If you want to go check out our show notes, it's money-guy.com. I'm your host, Brian Preston. If you want to write me, it's brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. I'll talk to you in about a week. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. 
The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. <laughs>